Hello and welcome to the Truth for Doubt discussion series. I'm your host, Michael Badger, and this week is a very special episode to me because I had the amazing privilege of being able to interview someone who I personally have learned so much from in Dr. Stephen Nichols. Dr. Nichols is the president of the Reformation Bible College, and he is also a teaching fellow at Ligonier Ministries. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Ligonier Ministries, it is the ministry that was started by theologian Dr. R.C. Sproul. And so I've been following this ministry for a very long time, and uh, Dr. Stephen Nichols has had a huge influence on how I understand church history and how I understand theology and the Bible as a whole. And so if I seemed a little bit nervous during this interview, it's because I definitely was. But we hope that you enjoy this discussion about how apologetics has influenced church history and also how we see echoes of past arguments against Christianity and how we as Christians can answer those arguments. We also want to apologize for the quality of the sound. Dr. Nichols is a very busy man, so we uh, had to record a phone call with him and that's how we we got the audio so it's not the best but we are unbelievably thankful for dr nichols taking the time to speak with us but all that being said we hope that you really enjoy this discussion awesome perfect well uh dr stephen nichols thank you again so much for for joining us for the truth for doubt discussion series I know you have an unbelievably busy schedule, so it means a lot that, that you took some time to, to talk to little old me. Uh, I, I'm glad to do it. I'm happy to discuss church history, theology, apologetics, so let's go. Yeah, absolutely. But before we jump into that, can you tell us actually a little bit about yourself, your, I guess how you came to place your faith in Christ, and then how you came to be with Ligonier and then the Reformation Bible College? Sure. So I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was um, a Baptist pastor. I, I went to church every, this was, you know, old Baptist church days. It was every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. And I believe probably about once a month, we had a potluck dinner on Saturday nights. <laughs> so I was in church a lot and um, never really remember a time where I didn't know about the gospel and God's word and just grateful for that being surrounded by scripture, great hymns, um, and just church as an important part of life. Uh, but it was, it was when I was 10, I vividly remember realizing not just that Christ died, but that Christ died for my sins and that I needed Christ as my savior. Um, and without him, I was uh, a sinner um, and would perish. Uh, so I remember vividly that year of my life, recognizing just who Christ is and what he had done for me in the gospel. And uh, we'll, we'll skip ahead. Uh, I was teaching at a, at a Bible college in Lancaster for many years and enjoyed my work there and the students and got to know some of the folks at Ligonier. And really just through the kindness of the folks at Ligonier and the graciousness of God's providence uh, was extended the invitation to come down here uh, to Florida and be a part of the college that RC had founded, Reformation Bible College, and also be a part of Ligonier Ministry. So my wife Heidi and my three kids and I, we, we moved down five years ago 
and uh, just grateful uh, to to be able to be here and be a part of the ministry, and also truly grateful, you know, to be around RC and those what turned out now to be the the final years of his life. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's I'm honestly I was unbelievably excited for this conversation because I personally have learned a lot from. Uh, R.C. Sproul, and he was very formative to, for my understanding of the gospel and, uh, and the Ligonier ministry, and, and you as well when it comes to church history. And it's just, uh, it's a, it's a huge privilege to, to be talking with, with you and uh, to, to learn a bit about uh, church history and apologetics. So let's go ahead and jump right in. So I've had a lot of conversations with. Uh, different individuals who kind of have this assumption that apologetics is just, it, it's something kind of new. Um, it's something that that hasn't been around for very long. Um, and uh, But in reality, I, I, it, it's something that has kind of a long legacy. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. What would your response be to people who believe it's something that's just more of a modern invention? I think in many ways the Bible itself is just one big apologetic. It, you You read the Old Testament and what you find very quickly is there are the gods, whether that's the gods of the Egyptians or the the gods of the Babylonians, and there's the true God. And much of the Old Testament is laying out for us God versus the God, and or, uh, the gods rather. And that one God is unique, is the supreme God, and we see him victorious, and we see his people victorious. When you move into the New Testament, uh, two main texts, uh, but you really see a lot. You see Paul practicing apologetics in Acts 14. You see him practicing apologetics on Mars Hill in Acts 17 as he stands there in that great philosophical center of ancient Greece and Rome. But you find the command in 1 Peter 3.15, we're commanded to always be ready to give an answer. And the Greek word there is apologia. So, you know, theologians did not invent this word. It's a biblical word, apologetics. And I love this text in, in Philippians 1. Paul says, I am put here for the defense, same word, apologia, of the gospel. Now, I think contextually, the tight context there, he's talking about being in a Roman prison. Um, and even while he's in prison, he's going to defend the gospel. But but I think there's a broader, almost see that as Paul's mission statement, if you will, where he says, I am put here, I'm on this earth to do one thing, uh, to defend the gospel. And we see it in the early centuries of the church, we see it in the Reformation, we see it in the modern age, we certainly see the need for it in the 21st century to not only know scripture and know doctrine and know the truth, but to be able to defend it and be able to contend for it. Because um, there's always challenges. There's always challenges to the Christian faith, and, and we need to be ready to give an answer. So, yeah, apologetics is woven through Scripture. You find it throughout church history, and it's hard to dodge it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to say that doesn't, that's something, it's a luxury, I don't really need that. That's a hard thing to square with the biblical record. Yeah, Absolutely. Are there particular, you know, I guess, epochs in church history where you really see apologetics coming through uh, to to defend against attacks coming from without or, or even attacks coming from within as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, right in the beginning, 
the beginnings, you've got the enemy without, of course, is the Greco-Roman world. And this is a political world. It's an economic world. It's a, a philosophical world, to be sure. And all of those are going to present challenges to the Christian faith. And so you see it in the pages of Scripture. So here's Paul again, Acts chapter 17. He's taking on the, the Stoics and the Epicureans at Athens. Those are Greek schools of philosophy, schools of thought that Paul is engaging with. And they didn't go away. They stuck around for those first several centuries of the church. And you have enemies without, but you also have enemies within. And those are the folks who like to mingle, you know, a little bit of a worldly philosophy with Scripture, or maybe take one piece of Scripture and uh, ignore the rest of Scripture. And we call those folks heretics. And so we have the apologists in the early church wrestling really both with challenges coming from that Greco-Roman world outside the church, but also uh, wrestling with heretics within the church. And you see it in the Middle Ages with Thomas Aquinas, and this is very interesting. He writes this massive theological textbook. He also writes a massive apologetic book aimed at Islam. And you know, we forget that, that in the Middle Ages, Islam was a significant threat to Europe and to its uh, eastern borders. And so even in the 1200s, we have theologians and apologists in the church uh, writing about Islam and helping Christians being able to defend the faith. So really, you don't have to look far uh, to see apologists in the history of the church. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we, we kind of learn from Solomon and Ecclesiastes that there's there's really nothing new under the sun. All of these ideas that we have now are, are kind of ideas that have already been been thought of. Uh, so do you believe that that kind of holds true with arguments against Christianity? Do you think a lot of the things that we see today are just kind of uh, reiterations of ancient attacks against Christianity? You know, I, I think you do see it, but I think we have to be careful here because I remember hearing one time, you know, you hear the expression, history repeats itself. Mm-hmm. And I've heard a counter expression that says history doesn't repeat itself, it echoes. And there's something about an echo uh, that that repeats that initial sound, but it also takes on the, the sort of ethos and the environment that the echo is heard in, you know, distance away from the original sound. And so I think that's a great way to think about whether it's heresies or or these philosophical, cultural challenges that come to Christianity, yeah, there is nothing new under the sun. You know, we're, we're talking about the deity of Christ. We're talking about the exclusivity of Christ. We're talking about the holiness of God. There's There's been challenges to all of those things from day one. But what we do have is as you move, you know, from in the 21st century, it is a little different from life in the first century. Uh, there, there have been piled on worldviews. There have been different approaches to life. And so I love that idea that history echoes. And so we certainly see kernels of perennial challenges. But there is also something about the trapping. I'll give you a quick example if I, if I could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sure. So like back in the early 20th century, there was a huge challenge to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And it came from Darwinian theories of macroevolution that were, of course, started on 
the continent and, and, and Europe and then made their way to America and eventuated in fundamentalist modernist controversy as an attack on Genesis 1 to 2. Well, you fast forward to the 21st century, we certainly have evolution still as a challenge. But today we have people talking about gender identity mm-hmm. and sexual identity and the definition of marriage. And is marriage even definable, right? Well, now let's go back to Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, we've got man created by God in the image of God. We've got male and female. So there's gender as a real thing, not a social construct, as we're being told. And we've got heterosexual marriage. So same chapters, right? But a bit of a new challenge in our day. Um, and so I think, we, I think we have to be sensitive to that. Uh, that as we move from culture to culture, generation to generation, there's the same old attacks, uh, but they take on the trappings of of the moment and of the environment. So history yeah, echoes. Yeah. I, yeah, that's an amazing thought. I like that a lot. Um, so, would, what would you kind of see as as the the big thing today that we as Christians are are facing? Do you think it's um, you know kind of this whole Gen, this concept of gender identity and and how it's fluid and all that kind of stuff, or do you think it's something else? Oh, I definitely think issues of personal identity are huge, and you know they're everywhere. They're pervasive. They're being pushed. There's an agenda. I, I think we see it. The intersectionality movement is is ultimately that is a, a an entirely new way of defining. Anthropology, what it means to be human. I think the other thing that we face, and you know, the reality is, the first century, first century Rome was a pluralist culture, uh, but we very much have a, a pluralism in our day, and it it sort of resulted in this interesting thing where you know you have outright attacks on Christianity, but you also have a, a large group of people who. They just want to debate. Religion is such a private thing, and you, know, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and we don't need to debate these things. And we're all right, and you know, so so it's hard to. It, in one sense, you almost want somebody to take a contrary position because then you can say, okay, now let's debate ideas in, in the marketplace of ideas. But what do you do with someone who says, I don't really want to debate? <laughs> That's difficult, and so I think I think one of the biggest challenges we face in the 21st century is sort of shocking people into realizing that, no, you do have to wrestle with these questions. The, the most important question you will ever answer in your life is, who was Jesus? And it, it's not enough to just say, well, your answer is good enough for you, and my answer is good enough for me. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong, and all of eternity is the consequence to that answer. Um, so I see that as a huge challenge, almost an apathy uh, or or a sense in which, well, we'll never arrive at the truth, so let's not bother. Right. And I think that's something we really need to be geared up for and, and have a, a response for as we meet people. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think there is a, you know, there's a challenge there, obviously, you know, when it comes to, uh, that kind of mindset being wrapped up into politics and um, even Christians being kind of, you know, entrenched in their political views and, and making these issues. Well, I guess, do you see these things as Christians taking 
more of a political stance than maybe a biblical stance in trying to, I guess, push their their thoughts onto people from the other side of the aisle. You know, you you mentioned R.C. Sproul, and and honestly, my this is one of the reasons why I was I really was excited about coming to Ligonier and being part of this ministry and and being part of something that is the legacy of R.C. You know, he was certainly involved in a lot of things, and if and if you knew him, you knew he had his political views, and they mattered to him. But when you look at what he was trying to promote, he was always about the timeless, and he was always about theology. You could always count on him for a clarity and a focus. So you know he's going to talk about the doctrine of God. You know he's going to talk about the doctrine of Scripture. You know he's going to talk about who Christ is and anthropology and doctrine of salvation. But he's going to talk about those things that bring such a clarity to the conversations that are happening today. Because really the the ultimate timely answers are the time, the most timely answers are the timeless answers. And I think a lot of times we get caught up in the timely, uh, we get caught up in ideologies, we get caught up in politics, and all those things matter. I mean, they matter deeply. But we can sometimes confuse them or conflate them or even equate them with Christianity or with theology, and that can be a distraction, and it can actually sort of lead us astray uh, as a church. And so we we really need that clarity, and I think the thing that we find is as we focus on theology and thinking right theologically and then living it out, we will have answers, and we will have a guide for us as we try to navigate these tense socio-political moments and and navigate these waters that we live in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, shifting gears just a little bit, um, well, throughout church history and and throughout the kind of the the development of apologetics, you see it kind of take on different forms, I guess, depending on the era or depending on um, what particular argument against Christianity um, is, is, I guess, the the flavor of the decade or something, I suppose. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. So now you kind of have, it seems like there's this debate between a bunch of different types of apologetics, but one debate that, that I have seen kind of come up a little bit more is the debate between um, presuppositional apologetics and the debate between classical apologetics. I was wondering if you could weigh in on that debate and that conversation. I know it's one that, that RC spoke to as well. So I was wondering what your opinion on that is. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I was trained at Westminster Theological Seminary. I, I did my master's up in Philadelphia, did a master's there, PhD there, loved it. In fact, my PhD there was in apologetics. Oh, wow. And, you know, this was the home of Cornelius Van Til. And yeah. for those who don't know this whole intramural language of presup and classical, Van Til is the, the founder of presuppositionalism and held sway there for decades uh, and, and, you know, I went right into that environment. So I was very much exposed uh, to, to presuppositionalism. And, of course, R.C., along with John Gershner, uh, his former mentor, uh, is known as, as being a proponent of classical apologetics. And these two are seen as, as contrary positions with, with different approaches to apologetics. If I could put it in a, a fine point, and I'm a classical 
love it all the way. <laughs> so for the record, so, and and I would totally recommend. Uh, there's a book that R. C. Gershner did with Art Lindsley called Classical Apologetics. So for the sort of diehard people who love philosophy and want to jump into this, that's the book for you. For for the mortals among us, uh, I would recommend R.C.'s book, Defending Your Faith. And uh, it's a great apologetics book. It lays out the classical approach, but it's also just a helpful apologetics book. Um, but you'll, you'll get a grasp on there of what the value of classical apologetics is through that book, Defending Your Faith uh, by R.C. But if I could put a fine point on it, um, classical apologetics... It's called classical because he uses classical arguments for the existence of God. It's not afraid of rationality. It's not afraid of being rational. It certainly is not rationalism, and R.C. is very quick to make that distinction. But it, it makes the point that we can use rational arguments to make a case for the existence of God. Uh, one of the key historical figures here is Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas, I think, gives us the sort of bottom line statement here when he says that when a thing cannot be known, we know the thing from its effects. When a cause, right, is hidden from us, we know the cause from its effects. So like I'm at a fine restaurant, I don't know what's going on behind there back in the kitchen. All I know is the meal, that's the effects. But I can trace from those effects back to the cause, the chef and the particular school of culinary uh, approach they come from and the influences, etc., the methods they use. I can trace from the meal to the cause. And what Aquinas does with that illustration is say, we have the world. And as we look at the world as an effect, we can trace back from the world to the cause. And classical apologetics are very happy to say we don't have to presuppose scripture. We don't have to presuppose that God exists. We just start with where we are and what we have in the world. And through argument, we can see there is a God. Now, classical will never say you can get to the gospel through reason. Uh, you can get to the gospel through philosophical argument. But it's almost like a Texas two-step. Classical can help us see that God exists can help us see that scripture is unique and we might want to pay attention to it, again, through rational argument, uh, and that Jesus is a unique figure. We should pay attention to him. Uh, but ultimately, the truth of the gospel is going to be revealed to us through the spoken word and through the Holy Spirit, and ultimately regeneration is going to precede faith. Mm -hmm. But it has a bit of a Texas two-step there between the existence of God and, and the uniqueness of Scripture, like all those things can be proven by argument, and then the gospel. Whereas presuppositionalism does not allow for that kind of Texas two-step. It, it, it has to see revelation and, and faith and presupposing the existence of God and the authority of Scripture, etc., at every step of the argument, at, at every step of the presentation of the gospel. Mm. And um, I think I think Aquinas is right. When we don't have the cause, we use the effects to get to the cause. Right. right. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, sure. Uh, so kind of starting to wrap things up just a little bit. Um, so 
if you could give this is kind of a, a strange question, but if you could give your your twenty something year old self like a bit of advice for talking with unbelievers or just even you know how you should uh, how you should be living at at twenty something years old, what what would you say to yourself? Oh yeah, that's a great question. I love it. Well, for one thing, I get to sort of correct all the mistakes I made yeah, by by being at a college where I'm surround where I have twenty somethings <laughs> and I can say, Hey, yeah. don't do what I do did. Yeah, yeah you can way. wag your finger and warn them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Basically you know, I'm saying what Doctor Michael would you tell yeah, sure. me to, to stop doing? <laughs> well, I, I you know, I, I think we're all reformed. We we love the reformed faith and the reformed tradition. And as Reformed people, we have to realize that we are Reformed because we are first and foremost biblical. And and no matter what we study, there is no substitute whatsoever for reading, studying, knowing, loving, living God's Word. Uh, it, it really, we must, be, to be truly Reformed is to be people of the book. And it's so easy to, um, you know, spend a lot of our energy on all sorts of things. And, and we need to do that. And I, I totally get that. And, and we need to read all sorts of books and we need to read theology. We need to apply ourselves to our careers and apply ourselves to our families. But really, you know, the best advice we can say for, our, for all of ourselves, no matter what decade of life we find ourselves in, is we must be above all things biblical and just governed by uh, God's word and stay as close to it as we can. Uh, you know, it's, it, you come back to this with that intimate moment of Jesus and the disciples, and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, so this is Christ who's saying, this living the Christian life, this becoming holy, this becoming like Christ and Christian maturity, it all flows out of and takes us back to uh, the word. So, yeah, no matter what, you know, in my life now, the best advice I could give to myself is be biblical uh, in my outlook and my approach. Uh, just long for God's word to 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 rule my life. Yeah, Amen, Amen. Well, you also mentioned you know reading, and and I know that can. Um, like sometimes you know, people just don't like to read, but what what if you were to give people three books that most yeah. influence your life and that you would suggest, yeah. hey, go out there and read these books? Um, what would you say? And you can't you can't say the Bible because that's that's true. <laughs> Technically, sixty six. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy. To, I'm happy to do this. You know, I have a little podcast, uh, Five Minutes in Church History, and yeah, it's every, great. every yeah. once in a while, I do. Uh, Deserted Island with people, and I oh, have that's pick, great. Yeah. I have them pick five books. So you're sort of turning the tables on me. So I love yeah, it. Yeah, hey, uh, so, but you're being kind with three, or maybe that's harder to narrow it down. So one definitely is David Wells' No Place for Truth. That book is 26 years old, uh, but I think it is it was a sort of an indictment against the American Church. Um, but more than that, it really just says the theological life is really the life of the church, and it's the life we've got to live. So 
David Wells, No Place for Truth, very influential on me as I was leaving my undergrad work, going into seminary and thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do with my life and, and what, how, the, how theology mattered. So No Place for Truth uh, by David Wells. Going back a few centuries, uh, History of the Work of Redemption by Jonathan Edwards. It's a 30-sermon series, but it's a fabulous book on just the the history of the work of redemption, the history of scripture, the history of what God's doing in the world, ends with these beautiful sermons on providence. Um, that, that book really influenced not just how I think theologically, but how I read the Bible. Uh, so history of the work of redemption. Can I do a tie for number three? Um, let me check. Uh, we'll, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. Yeah. You'll, the judges will allow? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'll go early 20th century, Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. Y- you could... That book is, is more relevant now as it was. It's almost 100 years old, uh, oh, 1923. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's 98, or I'm sorry, 97, 6. So uh, that book is great, Christian Liberalism. And then, um, and it's not just because I work here, I do think it's going to be a classic text, uh, and that's R.C.'s Holiness of God. I mean, it's, oh, it's, yeah. gri- it's gripping, and it cuts through all the static and noise and takes us right to what matters, uh, that God is holy and we are not, and we have Christ, our substitute. So it's great. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually, I just preached this Sunday on Isaiah 6, and I was doing my (laughs) best to not just completely (laughs) plagiarize his book. I was just like, everything that I have to say is not half as good as what's in this book, and people need to hear this. So I was doing my best just to not play drive. But but those are those are wonderful books, and thank you so much for for doing that, and thank you so much for for just taking the time to talk with us. And I know that people listening are going to learn a lot from you. I've learned a lot from you, and um, thank you again just so much for this. Oh hey, my pleasure. Appreciate what you're doing, and just keep up the great work. And God bless. Well, thank you. You too. You too. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye bye.